This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 59. And as I always say, you have to be an entrepreneur and a musician to make it in the music business. So the quote of the day is from Nolan Bushnell, who said, A lot of people have ideas, but there are a few who decide to do something about them now. Not tomorrow, not next week, but today. The true entrepreneur is a doer, not a dreamer. Listening to the Drummers Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And a few things real quick. Uh, Next week, I'll be opening up enrollment for a free webinar that I'll be doing to help you get your online presence up to a professional level, helping you get more gigs, more followers, more exposure. Uh, It's called the Musician's Marketing Boot Camp. So if you're interested in that, just make sure you sign up for the mailing list because I'll be sending all the information out about that through the mailing list. And, you know, as you join or as you know, I've said before, if you join the mailing list, you'll get my ebook, Stick Control Variations, for free, which are 11 creative exercises to help you improve your chops and independence and all that stuff. So, twofold reason to sign up for the mailing list the musician marketing boot camp information, and also you get the free ebook. And let's get into this interview. I have the amazing Simon Phillips, which I'm extremely, extremely happy. Uh, to have him on the show today. And for those of you who don't know who Simon Phillips is, I mean, he's regarded as one of one of the most successful and one of the best drummers in the world, really. And I mean, he's played with The Who, he's played with Jeff Beck, Judas Priest, Tears for Fears, Mike Aldfield, Gary Moore, and most notably, he played for Toto for 20 years. He replaced Jeff Picaro right after Jeff passed, unfortunately. And we're going to get all into that. And he, this interview was really great because he talks about his, um, his early approach to drumming versus his later approach and, and how he kind of changed that a little bit. Plus, there's a, a bunch of great information. I mean, it's Simon Phillips. So, of course, he has a ton of great information. I'm going to stop talking to you. I'm going to start talking to Simon Phillips. Let's get into this interview check it out. Simon, thanks so much for doing this today. I really do appreciate you taking out the time to chat with me today. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. So you were just mentioning that you were, uh, you're jet lag. So where are you, where are you coming from? I just landed. I came back from uh, Buenos Aires yesterday. Awesome. How was that? Um, it was great. We did, uh, three shows in Brazil in one in Sorocabo, two in Sao Paulo. And then we flew down to Buenos Aires and did one show there and that was it, and flew back yesterday. Nice long 10-hour flight to Atlanta and then another three and a half hours to L.A. Beautiful. <laughs> so who were, you, who were you over there with? I was with the Hiromi uh, Trio Project Okay. with uh, Hiromi and Anthony Jackson. That's great. That's great. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a lovely trio. It really is. And we're playing uh, a lot of dates this year. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm actually looking at, uh, looking at your dates now. So then... So you have uh, Protocol Two European tour date. So you'll be you'll be back over in October. And oh, actually, no. You know what? We just had to postpone that. Oh no. Yeah, yeah. Sadly, but unavoidable. Um, we're now gonna go over there in April. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. then at least you'll still get to go over then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's yeah, we, we. In fact, instead of that, we're gonna go into the studio and make another record. Oh, that's not bad then. Yeah. <laughs> 
So I always like to get a little bit of backstory for my guests about how they got into playing. And, and I'm sure that you've told this story, you know, a hundred times, but I just, I'd like to get to know the guests on a personal level of how they really got the drumming bug and how they got into playing. So could you give us a, a brief history of, of Simon Phillips and how you got into playing? Um, yeah, I, uh, my father was a musician. He was a clarinet player and he had a Dixieland dance band um, for many, many years. And, uh, um, when I came along, I guess I was absorbed into that environment. Um, the first three years of my life, uh, I didn't really show any particular, um, attraction to, uh, to any instrument, but I listened to the band, you know, I was, I was there present at recording sessions and rehearsals and stuff. Um, until one day, I think I was just about three and a half, he got a new drummer. He was rehearsing at the house, and he used to rehearse in a, a it was kind of, con, of a conservatory, which is very small, the, not the whole band could fit in. And then one day, for some reason, he decided, oh, this is ridiculous, let's, let's go into the main living room, and it's a much bigger room, and the piano's in there anyway. Right. Um, and he turned the band around, so the first instrument as you walked into the room that you kind of walked into was the drum kit. Mm -hmm. He also got a new drummer, um, who just, he was a great player. Um, and I don't know, I walked in and just, uh, I'm obviously I, my head only came up to the snare drum right. um, and I had a very clear view of the pedal and the hi-hat kick pedal and the hi-hat. And from that moment on, that was it. Uh, I watched the band rehearsing until I was sent to bed, which in those days, young children were sent very, very early, uh, you know, maybe six or seven o'clock at night. Um, and I continued to kind of, uh, I got a book and just was tapping along while I was in bed because I could hear the band because they were downstairs. Mm -hmm. That was it. Next day I was out with, with, uh, bits of firewood kindling and, and hammering the dustbins and, that was it. Huh. And then, so when you start to develop this, did you, did you take lessons or did you teach yourself or how did that go? Mostly self-taught. Really? Um, yep. I played along to records. Uh, I think really my father did not want me to become a musician. My mom did. Uh, we had a lot of music in the house cause she was a kind of, a, an amateur, uh, recording, uh, archivist. She would, um, she had a, you know, reel to reel tape recorder. Um, and she was playing music constantly. I also had two brothers who, uh, were playing singles at the time, you know, 45s. And I would just, uh, whatever, I didn't have a drum kit then, but I had a kind of an assemble assembly of bits, you know, which I called mm -hmm. a drum kit. Um, and just played along with records. That's how I started. My mom got me a little toy drum kit when I was about five, I think, and that didn't last very long. Then I got a snare drum and a cymbal when I was about six. And until such time when my dad said, well, maybe we should really see if he does have any talent. Um, he asked me to learn two songs of his, and then I went along to one of his broadcasts at the BBC, Aeolian Hall in London, um, and after the broadcast, he asked the producer, would it be okay? Could we record uh, my son playing with the band for two songs? And everybody agreed, which is very nice of them. Um, 
And I sat in with the band for two songs playing snare drum and cymbal while the other drummer played kick drum and hi-hat because I couldn't reach the pedals anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> One microphone over the top of the kit and, uh, and that was it. I still have that recording. It's hilarious. And how old were you at the time? Six. Wow. Um, but it showed my father that obviously there is some talent there because I started with the band. I stopped with the band. I got most of the accents and the hits right. Um, and I didn't kind of, uh, clam up with a red light on, you know? Right. Right. Which a lot of people do. Yeah. Yeah. It all falls to bits, you know, especially, yeah. a, you know, a young child is, it doesn't really, you know, the concept of it all isn't really quite there yet. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was a, a very, I'd been in and out of a studio since I was born really. So it wasn't really a problem. So now do you think that when you started playing that you were automatically just better than most kids your age or did it take a lot of hard work because i know a lot of people that i talk to that they say oh, i was horrible i was you know i was way worse than everybody else and it took me all the a ton of a ton of work to get even to where everybody else was and some others say well i've always been sort of ahead of my time and was always better than people my age i had no one to compare to nobody else played drums at that age oh the hmm. only thing i was compared to were adults pro professional musicians Mm -hmm. So as far as I knew, I, I didn't know any better or any, any worse. I just kept playing, kept learning. Um, uh, you know, I, my first drum kit, real drum kit, I got when I was eight years old. And I sat in with the band a couple of times at, at different gigs. We're close to, to where we lived. Um, I was just, uh, no, I had no one out. There was no other kid my age that was a musician. Hmm. So I had no comparison at all. All I had was uh, being able to compare myself with the, the drummers that played on the records that I played along with. Right. So right. if you think at the time, I was playing along to a lot of uh, London session musicians that played with my father, or I was, a, I was playing along to Gene Krupa if I played along to a, a Benny Goodman record, or um, maybe Sonny Payne if I was playing along to a Basie record or um, Buddy Rich or Louis Belson or Dave Clark, although it wasn't Dave Clark, it was someone else, Bobby Kevin, I think it was. Um, do, do you know what I mean? I was playing along sure. with studio musicians or, or you know, Joe Morello. Mm -hmm. If I played along with Dave Brubeck's Take Five or some of his stuff, it's a Raggy Waltz, for example. So that's the only comparison I had was professional players. Right. So I always sounded really bad. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That'll keep you motivated. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was more about learning to play music than the drums. I never had anybody. I didn't even know what a paradiddle was, even when I was a professional. Really? My, I did have a drum teacher that I went to, I think, when I was about eight years old. A guy called Max Abrams, who Phil Collins went to as well, and a lot of London drummers at that time did. Mm -hmm. He used to play with my dad, extremely old-fashioned, and we, I went there to read music, basically. And I'd get on the, the, the London tube, travel all the way in, into the center of London, change tubes at eight years old in the 60s. Wow. Um, and I'd turn up at his, uh, at his flat, and he'd let me in and put on his, I'd be put on his uh, moldy drum kit, premier drum kit, given a chart, and he'd just start a tape record and then leave the room. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it was 
he gave me a book which was modern techniques for the modern drummer or something drummer. like that and it bored me to tears i had no what is this the, 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 there's you know i was used to reading music charts not drum books right so it was kind of weird Te from a technical point of view i didn't really i was more into playing music than playing paradiddles around the drum kit right. although i did want to play like butter rich and i tried to imitate him as best I, as i could mm -hmm. but i didn't really have many tools to do it with because i'd never been to a drum teacher that said right this is a my mom taught me the mummy daddy role right <laughs> you see what i mean yeah yeah, yeah. it's a very weird kind of from a technical point of view weird start now you did know? you make did you ever make a change to to really concentrating on the technical stuff or, or have you always just done it with you know with playing with records and and learning how to play musically and then the other technical stuff just sort of came out in your playing well, I guess it was given a real boost when, when I started, much later on, when I started listening to Billy Cobham, um, I realized, wow, you know, loved his playing, but I also realized there was a lot of rudimentary stuff going on in the basis of his playing. Right. So that's when I really got into paradiddles and, and figuring out how to use them around the drum kit and, and all the other stuff, yeah. I was still pretty limited, though. I, I, I didn't have a vast toolkit, as it were. Um, I, you know, I, I've only really just discovered the wonders of the Ratamacue. <laughs> <laughs> um, mainly because I just found it very awkward to play and not very, how do I use this in a very musical context? Sure. Context. Sure. Uh, but yeah, I think around, you know, 1972, 73, I suddenly realized, oh, no, this is actually really important. I need to do this, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, um, yeah, and that's when I started to even think in terms of, you know, being ambidextrous, trying things with the left hand that the right hand did, that kind of stuff. Right. So now what advice do you have for younger players or even older players that, that are learning now or they're trying to learn new things and taking the technical side of playing and also taking the musicality side of it and combining the two? Because I know a lot of people are against learning the rudiments which sounds crazy to me, but they're against it because they think that it's not musical or, you know, they're completely <laughs> rudimentary. <laughs> you know, it's the same thing that people say, Oh no, I, I don't want to learn to read music because it'll spoil my feel. Right. I mean, that's absolute bullshit. Sorry. No, but that... if you don't, if you have feel, you're not going to lose it. If you don't have it, you're never going to get it anyway. You know, it's, right, it's right. Reading music has nothing to do with it. What you have to do is to be able to read a chart and make it sound like you're not reading. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with, uh, you can sit down and play a paradiddle and it can sound like the worst paradiddle in the world because there's no groove, no feel, no touch. Or you can sit down and play a simple paradiddle and make it sound like a thousand bucks. Right. That's the whole thing about it. And that's why everything you play has got to be from a musical point of view. Mm-hmm. You know, even when I sit down and just play slow 16th notes, I concentrate on making the sound out of the drum and making it feel good. You know, right. when you see a drummer, an, an incredible drummer, sit down and just pick up a pair of sticks and goes da 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 da, -da on the snare like that, if it's somebody like, like Buddy Rich or Louis Balson or Billy Cobham or, or Steve Gadd, 
it's the most beautiful thing you can see. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like watching uh, uh, Selena Williams with a tennis racket just bouncing a ball up and down on it. Right. Well, we can all do that, but you can't do it like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just the sound of that tennis ball hitting the racket. It's just, you cannot get that sound. Mm-hmm. You grab my, when, when I hit a tennis ball with a racket, go doing. I never get that beautiful pop, you know? Right. Right. It's the same with a drummer. Mm-hmm. You get an incredible player and he picks up a stick and just hits one drum. Peter Erskine. You mm-hmm. just go, oh, you know, that's how it has to be. That's how you should practice a paradiddle. Sure. And, you know, you had mentioned just getting to uh, really learn the in the ins and outs of the Rademacue. And you mentioned Steve Gadd. He's a, that's a guy that, you know, has, has done tremendous things just with the Rademacue and gotten a lot of, of musical exactly. mileage out of it. Well, he took a, a very basic rudiment and he thought, here's a good little trick I can do. I can go to the Kakatudum, you know? Right. <laughs> He's used that on so many records. Sure. Almost overused it. But the way he does it, it's gorgeous, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, at some point, we've all tried to copy that. I mean, I've done that on many records back in the 70s. Oh, I thought this was so cool. You know, now I avoid doing it because I think, well, that's that's just, that's what Steve does, you know? And that's obviously, his thing. he's never going to sound like the way he does it. And he owns it, man, you know, and he can but- play it. Inside out and upside down and frontwards Absolutely. and backwards and Absolutely. It's like the paradiddle. Uh, you know, I really got into that and, and used the paradiddle in a very interesting way between the kick drum and the snare and the hi hat, you know? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it's uh you know, none of these things uh uh you know, I, I think people that say that is just you know, just very narrow minded, but probably they're not that musical anyway to start with. Right. So you know. <laughs> Just touching on the, um, I don't want to get too deep into it, but you had mentioned the paradiddle. So what you said that you've come up with a bunch of different creative ways of using that with, you know, with different limbs and stuff like that. Um, what's, what's like an example of something that you would suggest that people try doing with a, with a paradiddle and moving it around the kit? Because I think that, that that's a lot of the, the, uh, the problem that people have, they take a paradiddle and they just see right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left. And then they say, okay, how do I apply this? Oh, well, I mean, one of the things I do if I'm, let, let's say I sit down for a little bit of practice and I haven't played the kit for a while and I want to get around the kit, um, I'll just take a single paradiddle, um, hit the first beat on a tom-tom, the other three beats on the snare. So obviously, if you start with the left hand, the left hand's on the tom, right, left, right, right, uh, sorry, no, right, left, right, left, left, then the right hand would be on another tom, so I can go around the toms like that. Mm-hmm. But then what I'd do is I'd move the tom beat, displaced one beat each time around. Ah. So it would be tom-tom, snare-snare-snare, tom-tom, snare-snare-snare. Then it would be snare, tom-tom, snare-snare, snare, tom-tom, snare-snare. Then snare-snare, tom-tom. That's the hard one because it's right, left, tom-tom on the right, snare drum on the right. Mm. Okay, so and that's a great trick, as uh, or a great exercise, right? Because it sounds pretty cool because the tom tom keeps shifting one beat, mm-hmm. and it's a great way to get around the drum kit too. But it's quite fun. Then you have to use your imagination. Once you've got that going, then how about play the hi hat on uh, uh, eighth notes, 
right? So it's going tick, 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 while you're going tick, 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 right? And then how about playing halftime triplets with your kick drum? So the kick drum, as you're going tick, you're going boom, 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 like that. Right. So the hi-hat's doing a three to four thing. Right. Right. That, that that kind of stuff, you know, mm-hmm. to me, which is uh, I, I I I have a lot of fun, you know, thinking up these these little uh, tongue twisters, as they were. Right. It's right. it's great practice, you know. <laughs> it's good for your brain too, or bad oh, for your brain. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, you know. And the thing is, you know, when you're playing music, um, you you have to get into reacting and thinking very quickly. So any of this kind of tongue twister stuff is a great practice uh, for coordination mm-hmm. for your limbs and, and messages from your brain to your limbs. That's really important. And the coordination. Well, when you're playing music, you don't have time to work out anything because you don't know what's going to happen. Right. right. So if a soloist, if the tenor player is there and he's soloing and gets into something – you know, you don't have time to work to spend a couple of hours working it out. <laughs> Hold on, let me work out this. <laughs> let me work out this three against four thing. Hold on, wait yeah. for a second. <laughs> Should just come absolutely naturally, right? Um, and it will do. But at some point, you ha- you have to introduce the the technique to yourself. You mm-hmm. know, so that's where doing this kind of groundwork is is really important. Right, right. But it should never get in the way when you're playing in a musical uh, uh, scenario. It should never get in the way of playing. Right. Now, how does it gradually work in for you? It just happens? Because I know a lot of people practice and then, you know, and I've had some issues with this before where you're practicing something and then you're like, yeah, it sounds great in the practice room, but it yeah. doesn't work its way. It never works its way into the playing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, hmm. Maybe you shouldn't be trying to play it then if it's not, not working. Not quite in. sure. Yeah, because you should be playing music. Right. But there's probably a way where you could probably introduce a bit of it into your music without really knowing. Mm. You know, uh, that's why, you know, practicing those kind of methods and then playing music are really two separate uh, things. Um, wow. How can I uh, explain that? Um, boy. Okay, I mean, let, let's say, I mean, uh, maybe this is not a very good comparison. Let's say you've got a weak backhand in tennis and you really practice your backhand. Right. But the next game you play, the other player is just slamming them down onto your forehand and you haven't even had a chance to use the backhand that you've been practicing for the last week. Right. You know, it's kind of a bit like that, um, but that doesn't really matter. Are you a tennis player? No, well, no, not really. I, I used to love playing it, but I haven't played for ages, but, but, I, but I do love the game. Yeah. Okay. I just figured I had to use a couple tennis references, so I didn't. Yeah, know I know. I don't know why. <laughs> it just, it's it's kind of like that, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't, you know, spend that time practicing uh, some rudiments and 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 you know awkward little tongue twisters, as as I uh, call them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. I want to switch the the topic a little bit to when you moved to the states in '92 for to do the Toto tour, and how does something like that? come about from all these years of practice and, and, you know, the career building up to that. Um, what was the, what was the path that got you there? Oh, well, um, 
I don't know. I mean, the, the, the call came out of the blue, really. Um, it was around the time <clears throat> I had just finished uh, playing with The Who. Mm-hmm. And I was doing various uh, other stuff that I was normally doing in those days. A lot of recording, uh, production, uh, and also working on my solo project as well. And um, then, of course, we all heard the news about Jeff passing away. And mm-hmm. yeah, that was, you know, it was pretty shocking. Um, and um, But the, the, the weird thing, uh, I, funny enough, I was actually with... Uh, with Bobby Kimball in Ibiza when that news came through. Hmm. Now, Bobby wasn't in the band then, but it was funny that he had been with Toto for, you know, a few years right, right, right. You know, at the start. Um, <clears throat> we were doing a project out there for a German uh, producer. And, um, and then a week later, uh, I got a call from Steve Lukather um, just before I was about to start the Buffalo Skinners album with Big Country. Uh, and he put the question to me. He said, look, we've got a 42-day tour booked in Europe and, and Japan and around the world. Um, we've got about 40 employees on, on payroll, uh, and we're not really quite sure what to do, but we're in the office here, and we both, uh, David Page and I, came up with your name. Um, we'd love you to, to come and do the tour. Would you do it? I went, wow, okay. <laughs> Uh, that's, I mean, you know, I, it was the last thing I expected. Right. Never and now how, how far, how long after that was, was it, I mean, how far after that was, um, when Jeff passed? I a mean, week later. It was a week later. Yeah. Wow. So that, I guess they were, so they had all this stuff all ready to go and they were, Oh, they were, they were just about to start rehearsals. Wow. Oh yeah. No, it, it was The timing was just, I mean, awful, hmm. you know, for everybody. It was just, it was, so uh, I said, wow, Luke. Um, and I said, when? What, what's the dates? What, what's, what? And he gave me kind of the rough dates when we want to start rehearsing. And I said, well, look, I, there's no way I'm going to be able to get out to L.A. to start rehearsing uh, because I've got, I've got this record to do. I've got blah, blah, blah to do. I mean, this is going to take a, a while. I said, look, leave it with me. Um, and he said, OK, Bob, but please don't take long because we, we've got, you know, we've got to make a decision. I said, yeah, I understand. Right. Um, let me, uh, you know, get back to you. So <clears throat> I kind of sat there. And this was like nearly one o'clock in the morning uh, in my house in the country in, in just outside London. And I kind of sat there stunned going, wow, that, that's, a, that's a kind of a strange call. Um, okay. Uh, there's nothing I can do about it now. I'd better get up in the morning and start making a few calls, you know. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> Which I did, and to my surprise, even though I was calling people to say, look, it's highly likely I'm going to have to uh, bail from your project in October, whenever it was, because uh, I've been asked to uh, fill in for Jeff Picaro with, with Toto. And to my surprise, everybody was like, you know what, that's, I, I understand, but that's absolutely great. I think you should go and do it and with my blessing. And I went, well, thank you. That's, that's great. Um, I think a couple of key projects that I had to move or cancel um, were like that. I think I only heard from one person, and this was even through the grapevine, that got a bit kind of bent out of shape. Right. <laughs> well, somebody, you can't make everybody happy. No. <laughs> and then I, I, 
you know, called Luther back and uh, said, uh, well, look, uh, it looks like, yeah, those dates are going to be fine. I said, the problem is rehearsals. I can only make it on uh, the, the beginning of September. I think that's what it was. And he said, wow, that gives us three weeks rehearsal time, which, you know, in those days, uh, I guess they used to take a bit longer, you know, for a mm -hmm. big tour, you'd, you'd spend maybe a month in rehearsals. Um, uh, but he said, okay, that, that's it. And that's how it started. Hmm. Um, now, the other thing which people don't uh, I re realize, my move to the States was totally separate from me coming to play with Toto. Okay, it was just around the same time, though, right? It was just a coincidence. Yeah, I'd been for a year before that planning my move and uh, sorting out the legal ramifications of it. So it's quite complicated. Right. Um, you have to get a work permit. You have to, yeah, there's a lot of stuff, you know. Um, so that was scheduled. I, I was actually scheduled to make the move in around October in 92. Uh, this kind of just sped things up. And I left England on, I believe it was August the 31st. Hmm. 92. Well, I guess it was good timing then. Right. It was just absolute coincidence. And the way it just all fell together was just like, it was strange. Mm -hmm. It was like, wow, that that's uh, kind of weird. And um, yeah, I mean, I flew over and uh, I was learning music on the plane on the way over and doing, you know, writing little charts. Well, that's what I want to ask you, because it's it's not the first, you know, big tour that you've done or big band that you had played with. Mm hmm. But would you admit that, I mean, those are big shoes to fill, you know, so it's not like it's not like you were filling the shoes of another hired guy that just, you know, that it, they were using different drummers all the time. You're filling for Jeff Picaro. So how do you approach that? Do you? Do well, you... hang on. With The Who, I was filling for Keith Moon and Kenny Jones. Right. So <laughs> it's not really, uh, you know, from that point of view, uh, I, I'm afraid, I, I mean, I don't want this to sound, come out the wrong way, but <clears throat> frankly, um, there was a job to be done and I had to learn the music. Right. I didn't think for one minute that in those terms, mm -hmm. that uh, my thing was, well, they've, they've got a, there was a lot of players they could have picked from that you know, session guys in LA that might have come in and tried to play like Jeff and which I think would have been to try to copy Jeff, I think would be a disservice because you can't copy anyone properly, you know? Right. Um, I just, well, they've obviously asked me to do it because they, they like my playing. Sure. So, and I've always come in and play the music for the music rather than for how it was played before. Mm -hmm. So that's how I've always approached it. Um, there was a job to be done and I, I just hunkered down and learned the music and played how I play it. And that's the thing. They didn't want to have somebody come in and copy Jeff. Sure. Cause that just would have been really strange. They wanted somebody to come in that would just play from a totally different perspective and play it his own way. And it's not going to be the Toto with Jeff anymore. Right. That's history. It's over. Uh, it's going to be Toto now with, for those uh, three months with me. Mm -hmm. uh, whether it works out or not, we don't know. Uh, whether people are going to like it, we don't know. But the most important thing is that we put a show together and the band sounds great. Um, and, and that was, uh, I had too much music to learn to worry about, <laughs> right. you know, how would Jeff have played this? It's like the light bulb joke, you know? Right, <clears throat> right. <laughs> so how many, how many tunes did you have to learn? 
Um, oh gosh, I, I I don't remember, but we were we worked up a three hour show. Jeez. So it was a lot of music. It's a lot know? of work, man. Kingdom of Desire was the last album, so we learned a lot of music from Kingdom of Desire, plus all the old hits and uh, all the you know hold the lines and Africas and Rosannas mm-hmm. and a bunch of other stuff, and 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 that was it. And the first song we played together was Hydra, and it sounded amazing. It really did sound amazing. And I think once we played that first song, Luke looked at Mike and Dave and said, "I think this is going to work." Cool. And uh, and that was it. And I I know it must have been really really difficult for them. They'd never had another drummer play with a band apart from Jim Keltner, right? And occasional drummers that sat in uh, at gigs uh, when Jeff let him sit in, you know, uh, to play hold the line. But mm-hmm. otherwise, no. They they'd always had Jeff there. Hmm. So it must have been the the strangest thing, you know. Um, and not only to have. You know, they could have had someone from L.A. that they know, you know, J.R. or Greg Bissonette or Vinny Colliuta or, you know, mm-hmm. but they had someone they really didn't know. I would played with Luke and Dave had uh, seen me play with The Who and I'd met them a couple of times before, but that was it. So it was a real leap of faith. And I think it was a leap of faith from Luke, really. He was the guy that uh, in the devastation he was the guy, he was the catalyst. He held it all together and made it happen. Mm-hmm. You know, now how was the, how were, how were the first couple of shows where they was, what was the crowd response? Like, was it crowd response was amazing. Yeah. First show we played with Manchester. It was an excellent first show. Second, uh, uh, gig we played, I believe was Brixton Academy. Was it Hammersmith? No, I think it was Brixton Academy. Uh, and that was amazing. Um, and it seemed like, I mean, obviously those were two English shows. So, that was an English audience knowing me as a drummer and a right, uh, right. you know, British drummer. So I think that was one thing. So moving on to Europe, uh, I think our first gig was uh, someplace in, in, in Holland. Um, I think that was a real tester because there were a lot of dedicated Toto fans. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, hey, it was a great show and the place was sold out. So, you know. Um, and... From then up, it carried on for 21 years. Yeah. So things happen for a reason, you know. Once you, yeah, once yeah. you kind of get over those initial those initial humps, then you know, then it's like, okay, maybe this is going to work, and it did work for, like yeah. you said, over over 20 years. Yeah. Um, and then so with with you leaving Toto, was the, what was the reasoning behind that? Oh, many, 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 many reasons. Um. You know, the band really broke up in 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we had just, you know, Luke and I had a lot of differences of opinion as to what we should be doing. Um, and, uh, and and eventually it just kind of imploded. So we went our separate ways. And then in 2010, uh, Luke got back with Dave and said, come on, let's, let's put this together and see how it goes. But he wanted to put it together in a different way. You know, the band was uh, Luke, myself, Mike Picaro, and Dave, but Dave couldn't make the shows, so Greg Fillingaines became a, a, a member. Mm-hmm. Then Mike got ill, and so we got uh, Lee Sklar in. And, you know, it was kind of difficult. Um, he wanted to reform the band with Dave with a different band. Right. Uh, so... The footing of the band, the premise was totally different. 
Uh, and it was kind of strange because the band that I'd been in for at that point, uh, well, 20, 19, you know, 17 years, mm-hmm. uh, f- suddenly felt like the band I wasn't in anymore. I got you. So we continued. We did these tours, uh, just short tours every year from 2010 to 2013. We had a change of management. Um, and then, which I wasn't in full agreement with. And then, lo and behold, two years later, another change of management. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I just felt, you know, I think this was not the band I joined. Right. In 1993, right. when I officially joined the band, became a uh, you know 25% member because mm-hmm. there were four of us, quarter share member. Um, it, it just for me had run out. So I felt I think it's time to move on. Right. Um, and uh, so I did. So what did you think about the about Keith Carlock doing the work afterwards? Oh, listen, Keith is. Is I love Keith's playing. He's one of my favorite players. He's a, he's a monster. Lovely guy too. And actually, I thought it was a very, very good um, choice. Mm-hmm. But of course, I mean, Keith can't play all the gigs. In fact, uh, um, he's not doing it at the moment. They're out with uh, not a, a drummer from Nashville. Yeah, yeah. I Shannon. Uh, I yeah, sorry. I, I should know. No, I'm just not familiar with with this uh, musician. You know. Um, right. But so, uh, and I, I, you know, so I don't know really what, what the uh, scenario is with Keith, but I think Keith is an uh, excellent choice. So I really hope it works out uh, with him and the band and, you know, and I wish them all the best. And as, uh, you know, we're, we're, we all, you know, we left on good terms. It wasn't, uh, you know, a, a shambles or anything. It, was, right, it right. was fine. But it was just mutually everybody accepted. Yeah, you know, that, that's, that's fine. So now well, that's I, good to hear. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So that's all in the past. So what's what is the future looking like for you? What are well, what are some things that you're working on? I, I have two really important projects. One is my band Protocol Two. Mm-hmm. Uh, we made a record last year, and uh, which is doing very well, considering the <laughs> the low sales of uh, today nowadays. It's mm-hmm. actually well comparatively. Um, we had a, a wonderful European tour last year. We've been playing some dates. Uh, this year in the States and we went to Japan and that was excellent. The record is released in Japan on Universal. Uh, it's coming out in Europe uh, in September, uh, uh, all over Europe, various record companies. And it's on sale here on, the, on my own label, Phantom Recordings, uh, released through CD Baby. Awesome. I'm going to, for every show, there's a show notes page. So I'm going to link, I'm just writing this down so I can. Yeah. If you link, link to it to, to CD baby or phantom recordings, there's a protocol Two website too. So okay. you can keep up with that. And, uh, yeah, the band is amazing. Andy Timmons on guitar, Steve Weingart on keyboards, Ernest Tibbs on bass. Uh, and it's, it's a, it's a beautiful band. And we're, we're going to be playing some more us dates in, uh, 2015. Uh, probably going overseas to the Far East and uh, Europe in uh, April. Great. Great. We're going to record a new album this year. We brought it forward um, as, you know, a lot of things are changing. Um, Mm. So we kind of had to juggle a few things around. So we postponed the European tour till next April, put a, get a record in the can ready to be released next year. Um, 
and that's so that's a that's a big project. Uh, the other project I'm involved in is is the Hiromi Trio project with Hiromi and Anthony Jackson, and we've uh, got a new record out this year called Alive. Plus, uh, we've been gigging, doing a lot of shows. We're going to Japan uh, actually next week. Um, two European shows, and then Japan for three weeks for the jazz festival over there, Tokyo awesome. Jazz. Awesome. Uh, and then back there doing a five-week tour in the fall. Great. I'm I'm listening. I'm writing all this stuff down. So I'm okay. I'm a okay. little. Uh... And then obviously I run a studio called Phantom Recordings, mm-hmm. and I'm producing uh, a new artist called Billy Rainbird right now. Um, we're in the middle of finishing up and in the middle of mixing right now. So now do you do, you said that you run a, a studio. Do you have a, a full studio or are you doing drum tracks or how are you doing that? No, no, sir. It's a full commercial studio. Okay. Yeah. You know, uh, people rent it. <laughs> people come in and uh, buy studio time. Awesome. <laughs> um, I do, of course I do my, my, uh, most of the time my kit would be set up mm-hmm. unless it has to be taken down because another session's coming in. Um, and I do um, any you know sessions. Uh, people used to you, usually love to come over and come into the studio, or if it's via email or post or whatever, then I do the session there and send them the the session. Uh, people ask me to mix uh, projects, so if I'm available and have the time, I mix you know certain things. Um, I do a fair amount of DVD mixing, so that's live uh, surround stuff. Hmm. Um, yeah, you know it's. Uh, and where it's, are you right in LA? Yeah, I'm in Sherman Oaks. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I live about five minutes from the studio. Oh, awesome. So <laughs> I'm gonna so where is the best way to find out more information about the Hiromi stuff? Oh, you can go on to uh, 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 her website. Okay. Yeah. And then for do you have a website for the studio or just contact you through uh, there's a your Facebook website? page for the for the studio uh sadly i had to take the 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 website down because it got uh it got infested with malware or something Uh, and it got really messed up my my webmaster couldn't do anything about it It was like look so i actually just uh took it down um and uh, we'll build a new one but at the moment there's a facebook page uh which is phantom recordings on facebook okay and um like i said i'm putting all this down and this will be uh in your in the show notes page for for your interview, it'll have all this information so people can check it out. They can check out the Protocol Two stuff, the Hiromi stuff, Phantom Recordings, and we'll all link back to you. So listeners out there, please connect with Simon if you need some if you need some studio stuff yeah. or if you want to yeah. see some really great music. Be sure to either buy his record or go see these guys live because. As you know, Simon is a phenomenal player, and he's got phenomenal players with him. So definitely go check that out. And Simon, one last piece of advice for the listeners out there that are that want to do this and make a career in music. What advice do you have for them? That's the million dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> you see, the music business has changed so much since I started. Um, there are now probably more artists than audience. Sure. There's more supply than demand. Mm-hmm. The recording industry has really just hit rock bottom. I mean, you know, the budgets for most albums are just, I mean, they're non-existent. Right. So it, the recording industry has just become, it's become a cottage, almost amateur industry. Um, it's, it's very, very difficult um, to, to, to make it. So 
Um, and then there's just so many musicians out there. Uh, uh, there's a lot of musicians out there who don't really want to learn to play very much. They just want to become a star mm-hmm. and sell music. But there's a lot of musicians who are very serious. And um, so it, it, it's, it's a really, really tricky business to, to, to get involved in. Um, there's so many schools now because, frankly, a lot of um, musicians um, earn their living from teaching now. Right. It's, it's, it's really tricky. Uh, so, and you've almost got to be, in order to be a successful musician, you've almost got to be an entrepreneur. Sure. And that's all, that's always my approach that I always tell everybody that you're, you're a musician, but you also have to be a businessman or a woman and, and yeah, be an you entrepreneur. Do. Yeah, no, you can't, you, no longer you can't kind of, uh, I mean, you know, obviously there are, there are some that go out there and get, you know, a gig for a little bit and uh, get a recording date for a bit, but you've got to be so much more resourceful these days. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I was growing up, you just need to, you needed to be a very good player, that, that certainly, um, you needed to have a drum kit. You need to have a way of transporting that drum kit. Right. But essentially, you could just you could just get high most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know. I mean, it, it was it was so different. Yeah. Um, nowadays, gosh, I mean, you know, you've got to. You can't give up your day job. You have to form a band. You've got to raise some money, or you know, record however you can. Mm-hmm. Whether that's renting studio time or buying uh, equipment and doing it in your bedroom, and uh, you know, it's it's such a different world out there. I, so I totally agree. I, I don't know. However, there's still room for excellent players, mm-hmm. and there's lots of excellent players out there. So it's a very very competitive. But if you can, you can do it. Then you can use wonderful tools like YouTube. Mm-hmm. A lot of people look at YouTube. I mean, most of the musicians I know that are out there on the road, when they get back to their hotel room, there's nothing much to do, but they can't go to sleep because they're jet lagged. They're on, you know, US time, yet they're out uh, in Europe. Right. Most of them go on a YouTube just looking for stuff, you know, mm-hmm. looking at great players, and they always stumble on somebody. So that's a very good tool to use to get out there right. in the public. You know, mm-hmm. um, but boy, it is, it's a different business. Sure. It really is. It's not the music business as I, that I grew up in at all. Right. And you'll, you know, even guys that are on these huge, major, major tours are still doing all these other things. Oh yeah. You know, to, to supplement their income and to, you know, to, to make more money and, and cause you gotta be entrepreneurial. Like we said, Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the, not the days of you could just get on this big tour and you're making all kinds of money. And I mean, someone like Hal Blaine used to have a, you know, a mansion and a Rolls Royce just from doing sessions. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Not anymore. Yeah. No, you can't stop for one minute. I mean, yep. no, it's crazy. It really is crazy. Um, it's very, very tough. I agree. So you do, you have to be an entrepreneur. You have to be very resourceful. And very imaginative. It's not now just about you know learning to play your instrument, hoping you can get a gig. Um, it's a lot more involved than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in a way, it's, uh, it's 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 tricky. But you know what? You, you can uh, 
you can figure out a way of doing it. If you really want to, you'll, you'll figure out a way of doing it. I like that attitude. I like that yeah. attitude. <laughs> cool. All right, Nick, I, I have to uh, get, I've got to get something to eat and get to the studio. All right. Absolutely. Yeah. I was just going I to, I was a scrambled egg here. <laughs> <laughs> I was just getting ready to wrap it up. So, uh, Thank you so much for taking all the time that you did to chat with me. I really, I really appreciate it. I know the listeners got a ton of information out of it and they well, definitely so. appreciate it as well. So fantastic. And, uh, I'll let you know when, when the interview comes out and again, thank you so much. And, uh, I'll be talking to you soon. All right. Thank all you right. very much, Nick. And thank good, you. Simon. Goodbye to all the listeners. Thank you. Thanks, Simon. All right. Take Bye. care. All right. So there you have it. The one and only Simon Phillips. He's so, he's so mellow and just, and, it's just so down to earth, which is amazing for a guy at his stature. But, you know, the more I realize it, most of the people that we that I end up interviewing here are, well, actually, everybody's been awesome. So it's uh, it's refreshing to hear all these people get interviewed and they're so humble and down to earth and and open to talking to to us. So I'm really excited that uh, that all these people do this for us. Be sure to check out Simon Phillips's website. It's just Simon dash Phillips dot com and you can learn all about the stuff that he has going on new records his recording studio the Hiromi project all that stuff and i'll also put that in the show notes for the interview so it'll be drummersresource.com forward slash session 59 and like i said if you're interested in that music marketing boot camp then be sure to sign up for the mailing list. You'll also get the ebook stick control variations for free. You can do all that right at drummersresource.com or check me out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash drummers resource on Instagram at drummers resource and on Twitter at drummers R source. And to the next podcast, keep drumming. I'll be talking to you soon. Thank you so much for listening. Peace. <laughs>